Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Well, Happy New Year. I think it's still early enough in the year for us to say that we're in the second week, although we've already had so much happening uh, this year. Uh, Both Jason Hendricks and Brett King join me today as we take a little bit of a look back, but mostly a look forward. So, Jason, maybe I'll I'll, uh, start with you. What were a couple of the big things that really stood out for you as you look back to 2021? Well, I mean, it was interesting as we looked at 2020 and what COVID began, uh, you know, to bring in, you know, everyone suddenly was on board with digital transformation. And I would say 2021 is when that really came to bear that, you know, all of the deniers, I think, were finally silenced because this idea of, oh, a quick pandemic and we're going to be back to the branch. And by the way, our customers love to come into the branch. Well, that went away. Um, You know, found out even when branches opened up that a lot of these customers had discovered you know, digital inconvenience, and they wanted to stick with it. I would also say that 2021 was the year that we could definitively point to and say, fintech is also not going away. That, you know, you can look at, you know, the growth and the fact that a number of these have achieved, you know, profitability or near profitability, that, you know, fintech is here to stay. I would also say, you know, it'll be interesting to look back and say 2021 you know, was that the peak of the hype curve for a lot of this? And we're going to see, you know, some of that begin to crumble because it also feels like there was a challenger bank of X, Y, and Z segment, you know, being funded every other day right now. And I I don't know that some of those segmentations are actually relevant. Brett, what stuck out for you? Well, you know, obviously, you know, Q1, um, you know, beat all previous quarters in terms of uh, funding for fintech, then Q2 beat Q1, and then Q3 beat Q2, you know, and we don't have the Q4 results yet, but it was clearly the biggest, um, you know, year of funding for fintech that we've seen since this sort of journey started back in, say, 2008, I guess, is when most people talk about the start of the the fintech um boom from a funding perspective um of of those uh, funding the the couple of interesting ones is obviously we had a ton of neo banks um you know varo chime um you know in the us n26 revolut um you know monzo in uh, in um, the uk um but the big news of course was nubank after raising $750 million, they then went on to uh, list in uh, December of uh, um, 2021 um, and did so closing out with a, a market cap of $50 billion, which makes them the largest uh, bank in the Brazilian market, beating out uh, Itaú, um, which is uh, valued at about $39 billion. Um, now, the reason for um, their better valuation than uh, their Itaú, which is a long you know, time uh, brand in, in the uh, Latin market, is their growth. You know, they, they're, at, um, they're at 48 million customers already. They're growing at 20% annually. And Itaú has 55 million after, what is it, 
85 years of operation or whatever it is. Um, and so why that's important, as Jason said, that fintechs really hit a stride, but we are now starting to see that some of the biggest banks in their respective markets are fintechs. N26 is the second largest bank in the German market. Um, WeBank in Shenzhen is in the top uh, 20 banks in China. You know, um, if you take it by customers, they're in the top five banks in, in China. So um, this debate that was often had before the, uh, the pandemic, that fintech was a fad as soon as they had to deal with some real crises, you know, then we'll see what they're made of. You know, um, you know that the, the 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 run of challenger banks is going to be over as soon as people start looking for real profitability out of these banks. All of that has proven to be wrong. Right? And um, you know, fintech um, blew through those objections to uh, really start dominating. What it also shows is if you look at the big IPOs we've had this year, um, you know, CoinDesk, um, sorry, Coinbase, um, Robinhood, um, you know, TransferWise, and so forth. Um, you know, we are starting to see these become sort of mainstream brand names as well for many of these these organisations. So when you look at this, not just in 2022, but looking out say further to 2030, it's fairly clear now that the largest banks or FIs globally, and we've been saying this for a few years on the show, but the largest FIs globally are going to be those that are digitally oriented. Um, and so we are really starting to see the last days of the traditional players in terms of dominance of this industry. That's what I think 2021, um, you know, was all about in terms of fintech. I hope that's not too grandiose a statement. But Well, Brett, building on that, I think one of the other things we're going to see when we look back, right, there was this race originally, you know, props to Lindsay Davis, who's on the show, uh, not nearly enough, but this unbundling, you know, graphic that she created for CB Insights. Now we see the rebundling. We're just calling it the building of right. super apps. And it's as if this idea of, hey, if we shove enough stuff together digitally, that somehow is better that I think the trend I hope we see in 2022 is not just a rebundling of services in a digitally first fashion, but we actually see that the largest banks, the smaller banks, the fintechs actually pull back and say, what's the unique strategy and value proposition that I go against it, you know, put against this? Because I think the super app is the equivalent of Sam's Club and Costco. There's maybe room in this space for one or two of them, but not everyone needs a super app for everything. But that being said, I don't go to Costco and Sam's Club for everything, right? There's plenty of space that don't go compete to be the super app of everything if you don't have the economies of scale. Well, you know, I think um, I've always argued the experiential play is a, about a, a, a different view of the world, right? Which is you go to Sam's Club for a collection of products, Right. But when it comes to financial services, particularly the success we saw with Buy Now Pay Later this year, I think that's where it gets pretty interesting to look at contextual credit, behavioral savings, you know, a, a smart money coach built into your life. Um, and so it's not necessarily super apps, but I do think the operating systems 
of the 21st century, the smart glasses and, you know, the, uh, you know, smart speakers and those sort of things are going to introduce us to this um, experiential world where you've just got access at your fingertip to your fingertips to mm. these core services. The 21st century is all going to be about access to digital services. The pandemic has just given us a glimpse of this, you know, telemedicine, um, you know, instead of going to the doctors, uh, you know, um, as you said, using a banking app instead of going to the uh, the bank branch, hybrid education for our kids, hybrid events, um, you know, for networking and things like that. Um, you know, we're just starting to see the exploration of sort of the digital services layer of the 21st century for mainstream access to services. FinTech has to power that. Digital identity ha- is, is required, you know, is clearly seeing, you know, that um, we are starting to see sort of the division in the world now between the haves and haves not nots in respect to um, core identity infrastructure. Um, the U.S. trails uh, significantly from the likes of of China there, um, you know, and so it, it's um, it's th- this is sort of this inflection point. And the super apps are interesting platforms, but I do think you know as a futurist, I tend to see them as transitional to more of the sort of experience led world. It'll be interesting this year. We we hope to see the launch of a couple of sets of AR-based, uh, you know, smart glasses uh, from Apple and uh, from from the te- the Meta team at Oculus, you know, um, and I think it's that's where it gets really interesting because the super app doesn't help you in a glasses context, right? It needs to be much more. Um, contextual. It needs to be m- much more highly targeted. You can't spam people with with information, um, and it needs to be much simpler in terms of execution. So, I do think we are going to have a bit of a revolution in terms of the way we think about um, experience delivery and content delivery. You know, moving forward with the computing platforms that we're going to see this decade. But you know, again, that's sort of the futurist lens rather than um, you know a pure fintech um, you know practitioner approach. Well, neither of you mentioned crypto or Web3 or DeFi, which are all somewhere fit into some sort of Venn diagram kind of related. How early do you think we still are in that relative to where we ended 2021 and what's going to happen in that space this year? Crypto is over a decade old now. You know, Satoshi White Paper was 2008, you know, but having said that, um, you know, NFTs and sort of this exploration of uh, distributed autonomous organizations, DAOs, and, and so forth. We are still very much in the infancy of the application of uh, crypto and distributed ledger technology in terms of sort of building the world of the future. But we are we are seeing efforts at digitizing not only money um, and uh, artwork or uh, um, you know, IP in the, in respect to NFTs, um, but the ability to sort of think about coding corporations and coding operations at a at a uh, meta level, um, and that doesn't even get us into the whole metaverse um, conversation. Obviously, from a Web three perspective, there's a big push. We're going to see um, some concerted efforts this year to um, look at decentralized uh, efforts at um, metaverse. Ha- having said that, though, I'm a little skeptical because I think the compute requirements for um, you know VR and mixed reality worlds will will 
require, um, you know, a big investment in data centers. And so I don't necessarily see how, um, you know, the decentralized world does that. But having said all of that, um, you know, let, let's let's look at what's going to happen this year. We we will have the um, Beijing Olympics with the launch of the first uh, central bank digital currency sort of broad scheme. You know, for uh, end consumers in a in a set of mobile wallets, including uh, China's own mobile wallets. That's a super significant uh, milestone. Think about the last time that fiat currency really had an evolution. Right, it was the move from coins to paper. You know, really, that was the last major evolution. So, um, this is a, you know, I don't think people understand the magnitude of this event in respect to the evolution of money, um, but. That that world that's coming off the back of you know what happened with Bitcoin and distributed ledger, um, it it has so much momentum now. It costs three. It, it passed the three trillion dollar of total market cap uh, barrier last year. Of course, it's come down a little bit in the bear market. But having said that, there is so much investment going into the crypto space that's inevitable that these cryptocurrencies sitting alongside central bank digital currencies and digitized assets are going to be a very strong part of the way we um, sort of deal with the transition to this mixed reality world, moving from um, you know, physical assets, physical contracts to uh, to hybrid and digital assets and, and, and sort of contracts. And it's a very, very interesting time. You know, it's, it's, it's not been... Um, widely predicted in, in sort of science fiction in the past. So it's a really interesting divergence from, um, you know, that stuff that I find interesting anyway. Well, but, right, you know, it, it is clear when we look at science fiction, you know, I forced myself to go back to reading it. I used to think that, oh, it was a guilty pleasure. And the reality is what is imagined in science fiction so often comes to pass um, whether it's because they saw the future, they gave us a vision of what the future could be if we went out and built it. But one of those visions I want to call out, when we talk about DAOs, these distributed autonomous organizations, that was not imagined to be digital. That is not a blockchain or a crypto thing, right? So Engine, the, um, the game company, was one of the first to roll out and operate as a DAO. It's just technology is enabling it to become more mainstream. And I think one of the things we're going to have to look at, just as blockchain became the buzzword, and then everyone realized, oh, maybe I don't actually need blockchain. Maybe this idea of a distributed ledger, and it doesn't even have to be a public ledger. Maybe it's a private ledger. I think we're going to see the same thing in DAOs, which is we kind of overshoot. Oh, it has to run on ETH, and then we realize, oh, the computing power isn't there. Or it actually is really bad for the environment, given the amount of energy it takes. Then we realize... The concept is right. The implementation is wrong. Let's pull back a little bit and then begin to scale it. But I think DAOs are one of those places that I think we're going to see a lot of interesting development, but it doesn't necessarily run on the blockchain to start. That, that's, you know, no, I agree with that. You know, bringing the cannon, you know, when, you know, you need a BB gun to start. I think the other area that's sort of gaining some momentum now is that, um, you know, all of this digital activity is requiring significant regulatory reform, 
right? And so, um, I, you know, I, I mean, if you look at it from the perspective of regulators, I don't think regulators have ever been as busy as they are in the financial services space as they are at the moment in terms of future visioning. Um, but we've also, um, you know, heard the likes of Elon Musk and others being very critical of the fact that legislation often doesn't go through review, and we just tend to add more and more laws on the books. And so as we start to look at, um, you know, automating government and automating the legal system, which is largely inevitable, um, you know, we're going to have to go through massive review of laws on the book and look at simplifying those to, to put them in code. Maybe this is sort of 2030 timeframe rather than this decade, but, um, you know, the DAO as um, a template right now could lead to um, some very interesting automation of, uh, you know, the justice system, of the healthcare system, um, you know, um, of, of the banking and financial services space to, to get massive um, gains in terms of efficiency and reduce the overall cost of government. Um, and that's where I think the DAO is uh, as a sort of core technology is uh, very exciting to look at. Well, in, so it's funny you bring up the automation because I've long been a fan of this idea of tighter integration between regulation and the regulated bodies, right? And it's so funny, it's met with such resistance, especially within financial services, because it leads to this concept of continuous regulation, which for the life of me, I still don't understand like the resistance to that because in my mind, there's nothing worse than this idea of hey, let's go away for a long period of time. Then you come in, you know, kind of hunting for things, you know, like the longer, and I think you've heard my talk on this, on the uh, innovation regulation revolution, Brett, right? The longer the gap between kind of the, an incident and when it's discovered, the more widespread it's become and the more severe it is. Why not actually make, not only does it lower the cost of government, but it begins to minimize the impact of something really severe happening. It's like the equivalent of test and learn but applied to, you know, how do we, you know, boldly go into this new frontier? Absolutely. So we talked about fintech and the massive year in uh, fintech funding. Let's look on the traditional financial institution side here for a minute. Uh, M&A is picking up again. Uh, it was down in 2020. It, it was up again, not quite to the, the prior level. Um, but the biggest deal of the year w- was kind of um, just overlooked as a fill-in acquisition. That's U.S. Bank's acquisition of uh, MUFG uh, Union Bank. But that was an $8 billion deal. That's the fourth largest deal since 2009. So what do you think about when you look back last year, what's happening within the traditional infrastructure of uh, regular banks and, and credit unions? And when we come back after the break, we'll start talking about where does this go in the future? I'd love to quote uh, Jim the Moose Maroose from the uh, FinTech Fight Club at MX's Money Experience, where he had made this point, and I think it's maybe the most solid blow he landed on uh, Ron the Shiv Shevlet was you know one of the lessons from the SNL crisis. And I don't mean Saturday Night Live. I mean the savings and loan crisis is if you take two institutions with poor strategies and you put them together, it does not suddenly make it a better strategy. It makes it a bigger poor strategy. Amen. And I'm not saying U.S. Bank and uh, Mufti are is a bad. M&A activity. It's just some of these things we see coming together in the mid-market, coming together with no clear identity about what do we uniquely do, and they're racing for scale. 
And I'll be honest, you're not going to race fast enough to keep up with the largest of the players, especially when you have someone like U.S. Bank tucking it tucking in a small $8 billion transaction, right? You're just playing completely different games. And if you are an institution that is not one of those already at scale, you need to pull back and say, what is my strategy? Because an acquisition for branch footprint or for customers is a waste of capital. And I think today, you know, in the game of, uh, you know, musical chairs, you're maybe getting a premium. I think that premium is going to get washed out pretty soon. And what we're going to see is you need to be doing acquisitions and tuck-ins that follow a unique strategy. Well, and while it was actually announced in 2020, it became official in the first month of 2021, where um, you saw Lending Club acquire Radius Bank. And so uh, we've seen much more of banks acquiring fintech companies in the last year. And I think we'll see more of that. Uh, Brett, what's your take on it from the uh, traditional FIs? Well, you know, undoubtedly there's going to be further consolidation in the market because, you know, we see these new entrants taking significant market share. A great stat from uh, 2021, uh, 38% of all salaries in the UK now are paid into a challenger bank. So that telescopes the market share issue that, um, you know, traditional banks are going to face there. But I'm I'm fully uh, on board with, uh, you know, Jim's uh, position on this. Um, you know, can anyone say truest? But, you know, if you, if you look at... Um, HSBC is an example, right? HSBC grew to become the world's largest bank in in the late 80s, early 90s by branch acquisition. And now look at them. They're they're about to fall out of the top 20 um, banks in the world. This is not a strategy for growth in the 21st century. If you look at the fastest growing FIs, none of them have come through merger and acquisition deals. Right, um, you know, all of the fastest growing FIs in terms of customer numbers right now are those that are, can acquire customers at digital scale. And the one thing we've learned over these last couple of years is that those organisations that have worked out, the, you know, this low co- customer acquisition cost through digital channels had a significant advantage during the pandemic in terms of their ability to continue to grow um, versus uh, those that relied on walk-ins in, in branches. And that's there's no no data we see on the horizon, not a single shred of evidence to suggest that that's going to change. And so if you want to look at the core competency in 2022, you should have already had it sorted, uh, you know, in 2015. 13, frankly. Um, but, you know, the core company is going to, core competency is going to be that digital acquisition at scale. So these mergers, um, sometimes they make sense from an asset perspective. Sometimes they make sense from an, an operational efficiency perspective. But think about something like US Bank and MUFG, try, you know, trying to, to work out the core systems landscape, you know, of their legacy infrastructure and sort of bring that together versus the agility you have of, you know, two fintechs that might merge for example. Um, you know, you're talking about a very, very different proposition in terms of the ability to mobilize and, and attack a market. So I think one of the interesting things that we haven't as yet seen that we, well, we haven't seen, um, you know, in terms of big mergers, but seeing some big, um, some mergers in the fintech space um, starting to emerge over the next couple of years could be quite interesting because that's one of the ways we might get to see some really market dominant 
players. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I could see Starling, for example, merging merging with someone else and and doing a spec, you know, or, or things like that. Um, you know, Etoro and a couple of others did a spec this year on a similar pattern. So um, I think big banks are going to do, and and the big capital market plays are going to and do you know, these sorts of mergers and look for these sorts of scales because they're good for shareholders, but that's about it. Well, and even double that acquisition um, just announced at the end of the year, BMO, Bank in Canada, is going to make a $16 billion deal uh, acquiring Bank of the West from BNP Paribas. So when you think about those two and you think about uh, PNC previously buying the U.S. operations of BBVA, e- even though you know, we, we talk about fintech being global, uh, banking's becoming maybe less so, right? We're, we're seeing less uh, predominance from the institutions operating in the U.S. being owned by somebody from much further away. How much of that is about, um, you know, uh, uh, look, uh, you look at, you know, HSBC's uh, exit from the U.S. market, this deal, maybe this is about distressed branch assets, you know, um, and sort of right-sizing that, you know, I, like, I, I don't know. I mean, um, that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the death of the branch guy, so I'm always going <laughs> to... Well, when we come back, um, let's talk about looking forward. And uh, before we finish our look back, uh, Brett, we can't think of 2021 without mentioning the launch of your latest book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. So a lot of the things that you talked about here, I know you've talked about in your book, and you'll uh, bring back to talk about going forward. And uh, Jason, you know, you and I are are working with, uh, and and Amber, uh, more than 60-some banks now through the Alloy Labs Alliance. What's maybe your just last wrap-up thought on uh, 2021 from the perspective of the incumbent players? I think, you know, maybe this is the misapplication, but you're going to see a lot of the incumbents if they weren't already, but especially at the smaller level have become woke, that they are woke to a number of things. And I'd say woke in its most proper context, the importance of social issues, and this ties back to Brent and techno-socialism, the importance of social issues at the community banking level has really that you know seed planted in 2020 has taken root really grown in 2021 institutions of sizes that you wouldn't expect really paying attention to ESG in a serious fashion i love because that is at the heart of you know community whether it is a physical or some other defined community is important i would say that the incumbent industry as a whole has also you know reached a level of sentience on Yes, the world is changing and it is not going back. I either evolve with it or I go extinct. And you're seeing, you know, I don't want to say it's a large number, but you know, those who are now aware of it are becoming, you know, hypersensitive to the what do I need to do to remain relevant. Yeah, the, the one other thing that's really interesting this year is we've gone from talking about core systems, you know, a few years ago to talking about tech stack. So, um, you know, that's a very interesting I mean, a situation where years ago we talk about the need for real-time cores and all of that, and now we see a lot of effort being put into the middleware layer, cloud uh, connectivity, you know, APIs, all of those things, but generally an understanding that the tech stack is what's going to get you there in the future rather than, you know, reinvigorating the core. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season 
is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs custom-tailored for your situation and your team, to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, we can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. All right, well, let's start our look forward in 2022. What, what are the things that leaders need to be paying attention to? Well, I... I think, you know, if we're looking at trends, it'd be nice to sort of step back. You know, we we often, you know, look at Silicon Valley and Silicon Alley here in, in New York as, as leaders in the fintech space. And yes, we have curated some, uh, you know, some, some really, uh, you know, big players in that respect. Um, but a lot of the really interesting action is taking place outside of North America and, you know, um, to some extent, uh, Europe. Obviously, we just mentioned New Bank, which is the largest, um, you know, Western challenger bank that uh, uh, IPO'd this year. Um, but, you know, WeBank in Shenzhen, they crossed the 200 million customer Rubicon, um, you know, this year as well. 200 million customers. How many banks in the world have 200 million customers? You know, they're only valued at 70 billion. Um, but having said that, you know, they are operationally probably the most efficient bank in the world. Um, and then you've got, um, you know, the digital banks in Hong Kong and Singapore. You had 86,400 acquired by NAB uh, this year. So just on the challenger bank space alone, we've got some really interesting traction. But the big um, traction is still happening in the mobile wallet space. And this is something that is 
dramatically underestimated in terms of its impact to day-to-day banking. Uh, in 2020, we don't have the 2021 numbers this yet, um, but just Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay did $52 trillion of mobile payments through their two mobile wallets. And keep in mind, these are not the only mobile wallets in the world. We've obviously got, you know, PayPal here in the US and, uh, um, you know, its derivatives. You've got uh, M-Pesa in Kenya, Kakao in South Korea, Gcash in um, the Philippines, Paytm in India with, with over half a billion users on on that platform now, but just the two Chinese mobile wallets did 52 trillion. That's almost twice the 32 trillion of all the global plastic cards, um, you know, in terms of its transaction volume in 2020. Um, This includes all all credit cards and debit cards in the market globally. Um, And the US, 300 billion in mobile uh, wallet payments in 2020. So uh, the, the, the US is so far from being um, competitive in respect to the mobile wallet space, but already mobile wallets account for more day-to-day payments than plastic cards globally. Now, for, from my point of view, this signifies a change in the way people use a bank account day to day, for uh, particularly for retail transactions and um, you know running their their discretionary fund funds for purchases and so forth. And I, you know I, I don't think banks, um, even challenger banks, necessarily really get that modality shift, that mobile wallets are getting so dominant so quickly in respect to -to day-to-day payments. But a lot of that activity is happening in places like Asia and Africa, and that's where I think it gets really interesting because no doubt you're going to have those ecosystems um, really starting to compete with the likes of MasterCard and Visa you know, not even to get into the fact that they don't have any interchange fees for merchants, as an example. Um, you know, there's some really interesting battle lines being drawn. Well, cue here, Brett, like call out to Alex Johnson whenever he wants to debate this one. I think, you know, uh, you know, theme song out of Africa playing in the background here. I think 2022 is going to be the year that we see cracks in interchange. So if you're a neobank that, relies on an interchange-based business model, it's going to start to change. And, you know, for the naysayers that are like, oh, you know, people have been saying that forever. No, no, no. There's a couple huge market forces that make now the time. One is look at the prevalence of the ability to use Amazon Pay and, you know, Venmo and Stripe. There are now large private networks. I would love to see a bold play like Starbucks say, hey, wait a second, I've got this Starbucks app with this massive penetration. What if you could pay with Starbucks, right? And you're going to see this unbundling at the point of sale, whether it's digital or with what Venmo is doing at the physical point of sale, what Toast can do. Like there's this unbundling and this openness coming. And then like you just said, when you look at what's happening in places like Africa, right, where interchange is zero, they don't have the incumbency of the card networks I think 2022 is where we start to see this, you know, begin to open up and change pretty dramatically. Not saying MasterCard and Visa are going away. I think they feel the threat, which is why they're running so hard at crypto and open and data, you know, position plays. I agree. Well, I want to kind of marry those trends a little bit with where we talked about, Brett, I asked before the break if we're getting actually less international in the traditional FI side. And and you said, well, maybe that is um, a reflection of um, the, the, 
you know, lesser value on a, a, owning a piece of a branch network in another country. Um, and that's the flip side of what you two were just talking about now is, is how much um, things where the future trends are coming from are outside of the country. And when I think about things like that, I, I think about floors and ceilings. Um, and so one of the things in some of the international markets, uh, particularly the lesser developed ones, um, there was a really low floor there. And the the, the ability to, to offer something useful uh, to people was a low floor, floor opportunity. In, in the U.S., I, I just used my watch to, to pay for something on Apple Pay at a, at a, um, a food pickup window. And I, and I really like, took a moment back to think about, was that incredibly more convenient than pulling the card out of my wallet? and putting it uh, in the thing or tapping it to the card reader. Eh, not necessarily. I, I did it because it was just kind of cool and interesting and I wanted to see, you know, the, the, the floor was a little bit higher. I mean, how, how do you think about how those trends are going to play in US and, and Europe where, you know, there are kind of more developed infrastructures for things? Well, well the big problem that the US card schemes have is card not present fraud. Um, yep. You know, we have 11.2 basis points of fraud in North America. These are 2019 numbers, but, um, you know, Alipay has 0. 0.00006 basis points of fraud, 10,000 times less fraud um, because of the use of a modern tech stack and modern identity infrastructure. And I know there's a ton of debate around facial recognition and how we should use that in respect to identity, but um, I'm surprised at how slow, how much a laggard, um, you know, Visa and MasterCard have been in respect to digital identity. Uh, you know, we've tokenized the but Because they don't have but, the problem, Brett. They right. push it to the merchant, right? This is the true, whole issue. Is, this is one of incentives is they push it back to the merchant, right? And so they don't care. The bank doesn't care, right? And so you know, it's time for the merchants to demand it. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. Amen, brother. You know, so that's uh, that's one area that's obvious, um, you know, to me. But um, I, I think the the other element that's more difficult to do uh, on those rails is sort of the value add stuff that we see emerging in the super app, um, you know, landscape where you've got scale of these wallet systems being able to get you access to a wide range of of services and um, you know delivery of those services very efficiently tied up with uh, you know um, you know courier networks and um, driver networks and things like that all of all of that is I think you know part of sort of the ecosystem play so in the US I do think we'll see more involvement from the likes of Amazon and others um, from a sort of a a, a a e-commerce infrastructure perspective is around mm -hmm. fintech for sure in 2022. Yeah. So if you are leading or starting or investing in a fintech startup today, what, what are the two or three things that you should be paying attention to? Well, I mean, I think there are really kind of the, the two trends. You are either looking at the replumbing of financial services, how do we do it? You know, in a better way to modernize the tech architecture, which I think is actually a great place to play. But I think it is also um, we're going to see a little bit slower adoption there, just because you can't just rip out the guts of how our financial infrastructure works today, right? Like the benefit of some of these emerging markets, like Vietnam and um, you know, Brazil and Africa, where they don't have the incumbency with tons of transactions. And by tons, I mean millions of transactions happening every second. 
it's hard, you know, to really go replumb that on the fly. But, you know, I'd say the second place, and this is where I think we're going to see the hyper growth, are very focused opportunities on those things that are reinventing banking, right? And dear friends and Andreessen Horowitz, you know, said, you know, every company is a fintech company. And I do think that's true, that what we're going to see that's most interesting is where financial technology, and this includes the incumbents, merge with the other parts of our lives, you know, I know I'm overdue in writing at JP, but you know my big monologue around the edge of money, right? That money is the center, you know, sitting in an app, sitting in a bank, sitting in a fintech. That's going to go away. That what we really need to do is get into this level of embeddedness and merge, right? This when we talk about, um, you know, first it was the disaggregation, now it's the you know re uh, emergence of kind of rebundling. I think that rebundling is going to extend beyond financial services. This really emphasizes the need for good partner management. You know, this is something that banks uh, have been, you know, frankly atrocious at historically because it's all been very one-sided. You know, you come to a bank and you're a vendor, you go through the procurement department and so forth. So, you know, one of the things that fintechs are better at doing is sort of these, um, you know, uh, multi-platform, multi-technology partnership. Starling's a good example of that in the UK, um, you know, but but um, others like you know Grab and Gojek in Indonesia and and their uh, uh, partnerships they've put in place um, you know we we see some 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 good examples of of these sort of things emerging but. Um, that ability to extend your footprint as a bank into the lives of your customers does require you to think outside of the walls of the bank. It's no longer the customer coming to you as the bank brand. It's now that you're there whenever they need it. And it, if we want a great illustration of this, and I don't think um, we have, we really under the, understand the impact of the growth of buy now, pay later, um, you know, in uh, US and European markets. But buy now, pay later is challenging credit cards. You know, it, it's contextualization of credit in a more efficient way than applying for a credit card and using that at a later date. You know, it's sort of a and and you know the the pundits may argue, well, it's a sort of an instant credit card, but you know, it's the instant element of it embedded in the purchase price which is the innovation. And, you know, you can't innovate that with a credit card product in terms of improving the rewards or some other aspect of that. You have to compete with sort of this real-time capability. That means you have to extend your platform. You have to be open to partnerships. Um, all of those things, which, you know, just, just think about um, most of the top banks in the world. Um, do they even have a partnership development program? Do they even have capabilities internally on the org chart in terms of engaging those types of organizations, or is it sort of spread across various departments? This is going to be an absolute core competency of uh, this decade for sure. First of all, I'd say that um, the growth of buy now, pay later is something that most banks never saw coming. Right, it, it it didn't feel like anything was broken there. We you need to pay for a large ticket item, sure, put it on a credit card or apply for one or use your home equity or whatever. But but secondly, you're taking this, Brett, exactly where I wanted to go next, which is um, I, I asked 
what should you think about as a fintech funder? What should you think about if you're running a, a traditional player right now? And I want to go a little bit deeper on where you start with a partnership, because we have had 80,000 conversations here and everywhere else about, hey, banks and fintechs need to partner. But that always uh, often, way too often, gets boiled down to some sort of uh, vendor uh, selection and risk management conversation. You know, say a little bit more from your perspective, Brett, and then Jason. I I, I know you have a lot to say on that topic too. Well, you know, we're, as Movin, we're doing a lot more partnerships with fintechs now. Um, and you know, like we, as you guys know, we did a big partnership with a major wallet provider in the um, GCC region with STC Pay. Um, now, uh, which we did in 2020, um, that's now starting to bear fruit. Those guys have over five million users on their uh, mobile wallet. Um, you know uh, now, um, but it, it's it's long and hard and very tough to get deals with banks. And, you know, you will inevitably have a technology challenges in terms of trying to um, make things work. Um, and you'll often have to, um, you know, uh, break new ground just to, to be able to have those successes. Whereas when you're working with fintechs, you know, um, operationally, you can execute much faster um, contractually and from a business agreement perspective, things happen in far less time than um, the lead times we have with uh, major banks in terms of deals there. So just their ability to get deals done in, in the uh, traditional space is a real challenge to making uh, substantial progress progress on the technology and capability side for sure. Well, I want to build on that technology and capabilities where we need to see the greatest unbundling, where we've had this focus on digital transformation. What we really need to see for those who are going to come out, I think, ahead of the pack in 2022 are those who focus on strategic uh, transformation, that it really is about rethinking the who do I uniquely serve? What's my unique competitive advantage? How do I sustain it? Who do I actually compete with? And yes, I am always the acolyte of Michael Porter. You know, some of the best years of my life spent working with him. But if you don't actually go back and rethink who do I compete with, because it's not another bank, it's not a small bank competing with a big bank, it's not a small bank competing with the bank across the street, it's not even competing with the fintechs. You're competing for something else entirely in terms of what that user experience is that you let off with, Brett that when we put ourselves in the eyes of the customer, none of them have banking problems. They have life problems of which banking, whether it's delivered by a bank, it's delivered by a non-bank, it's even feels like a bank, right? Like it, that is where the transformation needs to happen. And, and again, part of that, Jason, is data. Right, and we obviously have seen talk, people talking about data as the new oil and so forth. But a lot of the data you need to be embedded in your customers' lives is data that banks don't have. It's behavioral data, it's location data. Yes, we can get some of that from some smart apps that we have embedded on the phone. But increasingly, you're going to need data partnerships as well to be more and more relevant. So, you know, if you think about just a, you know a simple proposition around mortgage. What's the number one data point that's going to help you win in the mortgage business in 2022 and beyond? It's knowing someone's intent to buy a home. 
Now, banks have yeah. to wait for a customer to come to the bank website and you know use a mortgage calculator or something like that to know that they intend to buy a home. Whereas, you know, real estate webs like web, websites like you know um, Zillow and Realestate.com.au and you know the, these various websites they know before the banks know about a customer's intent to buy. So it's those sort of data partnerships behaviorally that are going to be so much more important in the future for context and relevance. And I think that that's a great example, but just a proxy for others, right? The banks have traditionally been too late in the chain and therefore they participate too low in the value chain. Well, they're reactive, right? I think that if we go back to first principles, why does the problem exist that Brad said is we're waiting for them to come into the branch. You hinted at that, JP, is we think they're going to come to us because we're the natural place to go shop. When the part of the user journey you need to intercept is much further uh, up in the stack of things they care about, right? It is not by the time they're thinking about a mortgage, you've lost. Yeah, I, I think that's really critical. I mean, if you look at all of the activity we've had globally in terms of challenger banks, the 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 tens of billions of dollars that went into challenger banks in terms of funding last year, the uh, the progress around buy now, pay later, what TransferWise has done with the transfer market, what Coinbase has done in terms of creating new asset classes, all of this, all of this activity has had to come from somewhere else in the market. You know, we are talking about the fact that we're seeing real formative changes in terms of market share and what the core of financial services is. You know, who would have who would have imagined just 10 years ago that in 2021 the largest bank in Brazil the second largest bank in Germany um, and one of the largest banks in China were all banks that have been created basically since 2015 right I mean that is in itself um, you know a, an incredible milestone now if you play that out it has to it has to be a significant threat. Um, to to the market, yes, uh, community banks and the smaller banks, but you know I, I think there's some major players like the likes of HSBC and Deutsche and others who really must understand the level of threat that the, these uh, market level market share level changes are ha- having. Well, and as we think about the traditional players, you know, they have to work inside a, a regulatory environment. That's no small thing. Uh, Jason, what, what are your thoughts around that? Well, it's no small thing, but one of the aspects that I would say, if we look back at Chairman McWilliams' uh, tenure at the FDIC, one of the things that she did was brought this idea of, let's go back to first principles on why does this regulation or rule exist and contextually, how is it different? How does it need to be applied now versus let's follow the letter of the law, rule, regulation, you name it, and it might be out of context. Now, I think this is a challenge because how do you actually begin to disseminate that? If you think of just how how big the financial service industry is in the U.S., right, in terms of the number of banks and credit unions, although that will be changing, the number of regulators that that means when you say, oh, each one of these has, at least on the banking side, the FDIC, OCC, CFPB, they may have the SEC, they may have FINRA involved, they then have state bank supervisors, if they have international operations, right? So this is true of a lot of regulatory bodies across the US and uh, across the world, where there are a lot of people with a very entrenched um, hierarchical system 
furniture and consistency. So how do you actually begin to change that? And a big part of that is, I think, the automation part that uh, Brett had hinted at. I think another part is the application of AI and machine learning to actually find things that people uh, don't, right? That audits are really good at finding known characteristics and going back and testing those that we not only need to automate, we need to add a level of intelligence to it. I think that's the opportunity in 2022 for a number of those things to uh, begin to come to fruition. Yeah, a different um, approach to this, of course, was China, where they sort of let these uh, new new entrants in the market have a lot of leeway. Um, and the the moves or the reshaping of the financial sector really in the end just was happening too quickly for the regulator to be comfortable with it was introducing large scale systemic risk and you also have jack jack Maher in there questioning uh, the uh, you know the 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 capabilities of the existing uh, banking system when the reality is you know we are going to have to make an orderly transition and so you it, this has got to be done with some care having said that um you know Re- regulators from this point forward, uh, I see two major activities to Jason's point. One is figuring out how to automate um, supervisory capabilities and compliance monitoring, um, and also you know criminal uh, um, you know uh, policing uh, criminal activities in the system. And the second piece is just purely the technology capabilities they're going to need to build to do that. Um, we have never really seen regulators be think thought about as technology companies. And yet that's really where the core skills are for keeping regulators uh, or for the regulators to be able to perform their primary function, which is mitigating risk at a system level. Well, we've covered a lot of ground and I don't know how to summarize it all in a few words, but maybe I'll just say this. There was plenty to not like about 2021 as a, a human being living on this planet. But if you're into fintech and the future of financial services and you liked what happened this year, uh, you really can't wait for what's going to happen in 2022. If you hated it, you're really going to hate 2022. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for those of us who've been in the fintech trenches for a decade or more, um, seeing that, as Jason said at the start, this, you know, 2021 was when you could no longer deny the massive changes that fintech is, uh, you know, bringing about in the entire financial services ecosystem. And for those of us that have been in the trenches for all of those years, it's validating. It's validating. But, um, I, I would say the best is yet to come. We're just starting this journey and particularly on the crypto side and um, DeFi, you know, we've got a long way to go, but um, it's going to be a state of constant change and 2022 is not going to be any different. And the number one skill set you need, whether you're in a bank or in a fintech, is adaptability. Oh, Brett, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was about to say adaptability and flexibility, you know, that come together, that uh, Deloitte, in partnership with Harvard Business Review, did a survey a number of uh, years ago, I think about five years ago now, um, for public companies. They judged it based on stock performance, but what characteristics make the highest performing CEO? And as again, as measured uh, quantitatively by stock performance, what they found is speed of decision making was number one, 
And number two was speed with which you are willing to remake the decision, right? And so that becomes what it really looks like, I think, at all layers of the bank. How fast can you make the decision? Realize, as Steve Blank says, you know, the facts lie outside of the building and then remake the decision with the facts that you've gathered. Well, it sounds like good advice for 2022, and we'll leave it there. We'll be back with more Breaking Banks next week. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.